what was it like then when you stepped onto Antarctica for the, the kind of first time for, for the expedition? What did that feel like? Uh, I don't know, it was really, I don't remember a really stiff, stiff breeze getting off a plane. And just, oh my word. <laughs> Am I really ready for that? The main moment was when the plane took off behind me. Um, and it kind of wiggled its wings to, <laughs> in the air to say goodbye. I think a, as close a moment as a plane can get to giving a hug, uh, <laughs> and it just um, and it just flew off into the distance, and um, yeah, that was it. And I mean, I guess then you just think, um, here I am. Let's let's go onwards. Suddenly, there was this like this wave of noise coming towards the tent, and it got louder and louder extremely quickly. And it was just almost like a jet fighter, but and then it, then it reached the tent. Yeah. The ice beneath the tent actually shifted. Um, oh. And I was like, oh my God, what's happening? And, uh, <laughs> no, no idea. What, what, didn't have any idea at the time what it was. And I, I was in communication with other, a couple of the other expeditions on the ice nearby and sent them a message, a message mm. to see if they felt it. Welcome to the Adventure Diaries podcast, where we share tales of adventure, connection, and exploration. From the smallest of creators to the larger-than-life adventurers, we hope their stories inspire you to go create your own extraordinary adventures. And now your host, Chris Watson. Welcome to another episode of the Adventure Diaries. Today, we're back in Antarctica with our guest, Orkney-born adventurer, Ben Weber. Ben recently undertook a solo expedition to the geographic South Pole, an epic 58-day journey that covered 700 miles in unrelenting ice, snow and wind, where temperatures plummeted to minus 40 degrees Celsius. He'd done this whilst pulling a sled weighing in at 110 kilograms that carried his life-saving essential supplies. And this is a challenge that Ben undertook in memory of his late mum, and you'll hear more about that in the Pay It Forward segment. We discuss Ben's previous non-polar adventures across South America, some of his motivation and inspiration for the South Pole expedition, including some words of advice from Sir Ranulph Fiennes. We discuss the logistics, the safety, and some of the mistakes made in this journey too, including a near-expedition-ending neck injury some of the strange, surreal and frightening moments he encountered on the ice, as well as his reflections and his plans for future adventures too. This is a truly remarkable achievement and a really fantastic story. So settle in and enjoy this fantastic conversation with Ben Weber. Ben Weber, welcome to the Adventure Diaries. How are you? Uh, brilliant. Hi, Chris. I'm good, thanks. Uh, just uh, uh, relaxing at home now. End of a long day. <laughs> Excellent, excellent. Well, well, it's great to have you. Uh, I have been really excited about this. There's a lot of things I want to get into in your kind of polar expeditions. But before the, before we do that, just as a way of a short introduction, just for those that, that don't know. So Ben Weber, you hail from Orkney, Scotland, a fellow Scot, which is great to have uh, on the show. You obviously travelled and lived across different countries. So uh, I believe in Brazil, China and India. Uh, that's right and you had a bit of a kind of career yeah i think you had a bit of a shift in your circumstance in 2014 where 
you decided to take up a little bit more of a life of adventure. And I think some of the key achievements that I've, when I was doing my research and, uh, you know, there was a, they cycled 3,600 kilometers from San Paulo to Santiago. Yeah, that's right. It was one of the training expeditions, which I was doing. So basically, just take a step back. Basically, working in Sao Paulo, I was, you know, about general office life, just that routine going in out of the office a day, which was just, you know, it was just existing rather than really kind of doing anything much. And when I was little, I always had those kind of dreams of adventure and kind of those dreams had kind of been forgotten as, you got, as I got sucked up into the corporate lifestyle. Uh, but then, yeah, just realizing that there was something missing and started to think about these kind of polar ideas, these journeys, uh, which it could potentially do. And yeah, kind of, kind of thinking about ideas, me and my wife then, back then, we thought maybe kind of crossing the world, but rather than going east to west, going from south to north. <laughs> so kind of going, cycling up through the Americas, crossing the Arctic and cycling back down through uh, through uh, Europe and Asia, uh, and then uh, skiing across, uh, getting across Antarctica, skiing across and, and back up again. But we had no, you know, these were kind of dreams, and we had no real experience of even cycling or skiing or anything like that. So we started to, we, we realized that to, to be able to do anything like that, we had to start working towards it. So we started doing these, you know, cycling expeditions and, yeah, cycling from Sao Paulo to Santiago, so going via Buenos Aires, so it's like, yeah, about 3,600 kilometers or so. That was one of the journeys which we did alongside uh, some extreme altitude mountaineering in the Andes and uh, polar training and uh, a few other things. <laughs> yeah, excellent. So what, because the polar, because there is quite a bit of a polar theme to, to I mean, yeah. even your website, polarweber.com. Yeah. So you crossed Canada, didn't you, as well? You've done an yeah. expedition across uh was that south to north that's Canada? right yeah that's right so that was uh, after we did our polar training uh we were on the flight back down from uh baffin island so up, up in arctic canada and we head back down south and we saw in the plains map uh of all the kind of uh, the communities where it stopped off pretty much a, a line of communities dissecting central canada and uh, we thought that could be actually a really cool expedition. <laughs> what about crossing Canada from <laughs> south to north? And but yeah, with uh, skiing uh, and cycling. So ba basically, yes, we started off at the the U.S. border south of Winnipeg in winter, and cycled up north until the roads ran out. Uh, before we we switched to skis and the sled, uh, uh, then skiing up to the north of the Hudson Bay. So yeah, it was like it was an expedition in its own right. So it was, a, it was really enjoyable, but difficult. Uh, but at the same time, it was also kind of complementing the training in polar environments. Because I mean, it's, it's I mean, minus forty or minus fifty. I think the the coldest mm -hmm. we had there was minus fifty three. So basically, getting us prepared for even more extreme expeditions. So putting ourselves into the extreme environments to mm -hmm. get the experience to be able to do uh, polar journeys uh, with the Arctic and the, the South Pole. Yeah. So, so did I hear you right that you hadn't done skiing before you decided to do your polar training? <laughs> no, no, we hadn't done any skiing at all. I'd never done any downhill. And my, my wife, and she was from Brazil. Uh, so she... Uh, she uh, <laughs> That's madness. 
Yeah. We were living in Sao Paulo and it was uh, plus 40 when we left and arriving in Winnipeg and it was minus 40. So, <laughs> so, it was so how did your cold... polar training go about then? Mm-hmm. How did you do your uh, training? Yeah, so basically I, um, I searched, looked around. So I'd already been in contact with people who organize kind of the logistics for Antarctic expeditions. And mm-hmm. they recommended a, a family of polar explorers, uh, Sarah McNair and her mother, Matty McNair. Uh, they, they've done these, uh, they, I mean, they, uh, they live up in Iqaluit on Baffin Island and they've done all sorts of polar journeys between them. Mm-hmm. I think Sarah's kind of pretty much grown up in, in the Arctic and <laughs> incredible adventures. Mm-hmm. And they, yeah, they organized polar training. So we got in touch with them and yeah, about basically two weeks. Just learning basic survival skills, cooking in the tent, putting the tent up and down, skiing, <laughs> uh, and kind of uh, uh, other aspects which are kind of important for, especially for Arctic expeditions, like sw- uh, swimming in the water yeah, yeah. in the Arctic, because you have to, especially with North Pole expeditions, you you have to be able to navigate water leads between the, the ice, which is breaking up. So kind of getting experience with that. Mm-hmm. And then we had a, a week, about 10 days by ourselves, a bit longer, almost two weeks, sorry. Just kind of putting us two, me and my, my, my wife, we just went by ourselves uh, through this amazing national park, uh, the Yatak National Park. So basically a 200-kilometer journey, 250 in the Canadian wilderness. So it was putting the training into practice. Oh. So almost like a baptism of fire. Yeah. <laughs> So how, how long was your how long was the expedition in Canada then from south to north? Oh wow, that went on for about five months almost. Yeah, so it's about a wow. thousand kilometers of of cycling and a thousand kilometers yeah. of skiing. So, yeah, so yeah. yeah, about five months. I mean, we could, we did stop off at the different communities for breaks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it wasn't completely nonstop. So. And I, yeah, yeah I, okay. I got, I got frostbite in one of, at one of the points when, which meant a bit of a pause in Churchill, which it wasn't so good. <laughs> uh-huh. So I added, added on a bit of time for that. Yeah. yeah so, so you, so you were stalking up uh, as you went then. So you went completely right. off the beaten yeah. track the, the entire. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Good. Yeah. So did that set yeah, you up? Basically. Did that set you up for huh? Greenland then? Did that set you up for the Greenland? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess with the, with Greenland, so that came a few years afterwards. So I was getting a bit, I mean, with me and my wife, we split up. We're actually probably better friends now than uh, where we were when we were married. But uh, it's funny what five months alone in (laughs) a tent can do to (laughs) marriages. (laughs) I can imagine. Maybe the lack of shower over the time. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, over over the time, I mean, we well, I mean, we split up, and it, we were self financing everything, and sponsorship. Getting sponsorship is a, such a soul destroying thing, and uh, we were basically self financing mm-hmm. everything. Was, um, if there's anything I'm not good at, it's, it's getting sponsorship and marketing. Um, <laughs> especially in Brazil, they, they kind of um, speaking with people, you know, potential sponsors. Uh, they would always ask, you know, are you, are you wanting us to pay for a holiday in the ice? It's kind of, I think over there especially, it's harder <laughs> to get 
the, uh, the, the support of companies to to support that. Whereas over here, we got I don't, I don't know. It seems like we got a bit more of a, a corporate culture of backing expeditions. But yeah, I mean that's that was kind of soul destroying, kind of getting that hope where you think you might get support, but then it comes going gushing down. And needed to go back to work um, to the old job, which you know, which kind of just yeah i mean i guess i was getting a bit depressed and and everything so and then we split up so it's a bit of a kind of hard couple of years and then yeah my 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 mother passed away so about four four years or so ago five four and a half years ago and my mom had always been very supportive of all the expeditions and it was all very sudden and then so with her death it kind of it got me to look think back to what i really wanted to do and i really want i mean the, the polar dreams me ever since i was little kind of a, i rediscovered those dreams and letting them slide so I needed to go back to them and it gave me the you know the real kind of push to go after the polar dreams and yeah then it was greenland and uh which uh yeah incredible and wonderful challenge in its own right and um again with the with an eye also to preparing for the south pole yeah awesome so, so why the South Pole? Was that some? Were these previous adventures? Were were they all kind of part of the the plan? Was it conscious to build up that experience to go on a solo exactly. expedition to the South Pole? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I guess it, at the start it wouldn't have been solo. It would just been it would have been me and my wife. But you know, those I mean the global dreams are un, unattainable. I mean, so the small the South Pole itself is a, such a is in, I mean. Uh, my childhood heroes, Shackleton, Scott, uh, I mean, all the, uh, and the adventures go down the, the classical age of exploration. So it's kind of a, the South Pole had always been a, a big, big goal. And just doing it by itself is, I mean, you don't need that global journey to have such a great journey just with the South Pole itself. So it was a, it was a kind of realistic, but still extremely challenging goal to attain. And yeah, so it's, it's something I just... I know, I just, I mean, everything had been with an eye to prepare for the polar environments, but yeah, that was the one which I really had to do. Yeah. So, so how long was your planning for that then from the, the kind of moment you decided I want to do this to actually setting off? Was it a long journey and did you have a lot to do for sponsorships? Ultimately, I decided to, I was in a lucky position to be able to self-finance. Can I ask a favour? If you're enjoying the show, can you give us a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel on YouTube? And if you happen to be listening to the audio-only version, can you give us a follow along there too? It'll really help grow the channel. We've got some fantastic guests coming up with some truly inspirational stories. Now, let's get back to this episode. Thank you. So, okay. So I came back from India. So I'd work. I'd been working full time for a company first in Brazil, then to India. And I came back to UK in 2019, mm-hmm. kind of, sorry, 2020, kind of with, with the COVID pandemics, the pandemic. Uh, and mm-hmm. it was a choice of either going back to India or quit my job. Uh, and I wanted to stay back home because I'm close to family and I, I liked being back, you know, mm-hmm. being able to get up into the highlands and uh, uh, during the breaks between lockdowns. <laughs> and so that was, so in about 2020, so then I, when I started going freelance and I was really lucky that it went okay and it kind of made me think that maybe I could actually manage it to save up 
my some money i mean i don't have a house or anything so i was lucky enough to be staying with my sister for a while and i was able to say save and i just deliberately decided not to go after sponsorship just because it's yeah uh, just because of the experiences in the past of how you know you have to be really lucky to get it i mean you have to know find the right people somebody who's going to connect who you can connect with who's got the corporate backing and they, they have the imagination to link their corporation with the expedition. But I just really wanted to do this journey and I wasn't going to let sponsorship stop me. So for me, especially, yeah, as I say, I find it hard with the whole marketing with sponsorship. So it would have taken me as much time, if not more than working <laughs> to, to get it. So it took about uh, two years or so of working and training and speaking with Antarctic Logistics, the company which supports uh, Antarctic expeditions. So yeah, and we're, we're kind of the, the planning with uh, never start points and and the like and the, and, the, and the training. So once I realized that it would be possible that the freelance work was working out, I'd say what about one year in total, basically committing to Antarctic Logistics. Then it was just training the Greenland, getting the Greenland journey in. Uh, and uh, mm. getting all the bits of pieces which I didn't have uh, from, you know, from the cumulative, cumulative uh, journey, other journeys which I've done. Awesome. So what does something like that cost, Ben, roughly? I mean, if you can't oh. give exact numbers, that's fine. But what would that cost? Because, like, I mean, so 50 just, days, you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, so Antarctic Logistics... This is the Antarctic Logistics is the main uh, logistics company which supports uh, expeditions. Mm-hmm. They have to approve any expedition which goes to the South Pole or, or, or Antarctica. So um, okay. uh, they fly people in and out of the continent. They fly people to the South Pole yeah. and back. And they provided, they, for me, they provided a kind of a, a background. Uh, so emergency contacts so or every day oh, I would okay. contact them. So basically I was solo, but... There was a, they, they were like a safety net. So they had doctors and they had yeah, the pilots yeah. and everything. So just their cost is about 50,000 pounds. And yeah. then on top of that, all the equipment, all the food, I had to uh, send freight over to Chile with, uh, with all the uh, items which I bought, you know, kind of the, the sled and you know, kind of <laughs> uh, the sled itself as it is. Was it was it was a bit wasn't cheap. <laughs> I went up to Svalbard to get the ship, <laughs> but get the sled. Uh, uh, so I would say altogether, including all those kind of costs, was just mount up. Is I guess I had a lot of equipment already, probably about seventy thousand uh-huh. pounds, something like that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So there's um, yeah. I, I, I as I say, I put all my savings into that. So I don't have a house or anything. I think it's a bit irresponsible. <laughs> but yeah, it was for me. It was worth well, it. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's got to be I a book in that. There's got to be a book across all of your across all of your expeditions. There's got to be a book in there. You're, yeah, get your, I mean, get your book done and, and get that money I, back. <laughs> Who, who knows? Maybe get it made into a film. <laughs> so you think of the actors. Who well, could. exactly. Excellent, excellent. Who, who would play Ben Weber in the film of the, the expedition oh, to word. the South Pole? Who who would play Ben? <laughs> I don't know. Tom Hardy. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <And I maybe laughs> excellent, get... excellent. 
Maybe get Christopher Nolan to be the director. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll give him a call later. Yeah. <laughs> I think I've got him on WhatsApp, so I'll drop him a note after. Awesome. Yeah, drop him a note. So, yeah. Nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> so going back, see, a question about your logistics. Cause, I mean, I've studied quite a bit about Antarctica, yeah. and uh, and I'm actually speaking yeah. to, to, to another chap uh, later next month, actually, who's released a book on it, uh, Bruce Loyendike. And... There's mm-hmm. some interesting things in there about, you know, with logistics and, you know, there's so far you go where you're beyond helicopter reach. So you are like, you know, you're proper isolated and proper alone. What, what was it? Was that ever a concern when you were out there on it? What was it? What was your logistics and safety team backup like? Were they a radio call away, satellite phone away or? Yeah, it was all satellite phone. So I had two satellite phone units. One which was basically my main handheld mm-hmm. unit, and then another which was also a hotspot, which I could upload uh, photos to send back home. Uh, but mate, yeah, I would call in this the logistics people every night at about eight o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. If I missed my call, so if I didn't call in within twenty four hours of that, they would send a rescue flight, uh, mm-hmm. a, a search party. To ah, yeah, okay. no, no helicopters. It was all planes. Uh, so they've got these twin mm-hmm. otters, which okay. have a great range on them, and they, they can land on that, uh, you know, short stretches. Okay. Yeah. Also, I had a locator device, an, an inreach, uh, which was fantastic. It doubled as a GPS unit, but also almost mm-hmm. like just you, you have to pay for a, a messaging plan and basically unlimited messages to anyone around the world. Nobody, people wouldn't have to pay mm-hmm. to send messages to me. And yeah, about £60 a month, something like that, and the unlimited messages. And it was like, it, and it also broadcast my position. So my position would go to the logistics yeah. team. So they would always know where I was. So kind of every, I had it set broadcast every half hour or, um, or every one hour when I was on the kind of flatter uh, places. Was, uh, I wasn't it, going too fast. Yeah. Cause I seen on your website, there was a little, there was a little map and it could track yeah. your location as you were going on your website, which was really cool. Yeah, no, that was a really neat, I, neat, neat um, feature. So I worked with a couple of people, zero six zero maps, and uh, they they, mm-hmm. they they were able to basically take my position from the the locator, uh, the last position where I stayed when I camped, and they, I'd send a, a message from my satellite phone to them, and it would synchronize to where it was on from the locator and, and go on the map. And it was there. Uh, it was, yeah, I think it was it, it helped people see progress. And it was kind of nice kind of go, seeing yeah. at the end of the expedition once I got back, being able to go through, through all of that. Yeah, good. It would make a, a really good documentary, in my opinion, like because the way that you've charted your days throughout it as well, it would be really good to turn that into a, a short documentary. So I'm sure you'll get on screen or get this in a book at some time. It's, it really is. Uh, yeah, I, so, I, I wish I'd taken more film footage, but oh well, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> well, just get the money together and go back and do it again. Maybe do it in reverse. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, that's, that's, uh, a, that's definitely something. So what, what was it like then when you stepped onto Antarctica for the first time for, for the expedition? What did that feel like? It was when you were on I your mean, own. The, first of all, the, yeah. First of all, the 
So I guess there's kind of two moments. So first landing in Antarctica. So you fly with Antarctic Logistics, the company, logistics company, and they got a big base. So it actually was a quite a luxury plane, 757, which lands on that base. So it's, and I mean, first of all, you mean flying over the continent, you're just white. Uh, you know, it was, I mean, I think it was just mm-hmm. cloudy at the time. So couldn't really see much. But then suddenly getting close to the base. Uh, the clouds seem to just disappear and then you see the Ellsworth Mountains and you think, oh, wow, that's just incredible. You mm. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> finally happening. And stepping out of the aircraft and mm. it was cold. I brought <laughs> kind of gear with me <laughs> to, uh, you know, as hand baggage. That was a kind of, uh, there was really, I remember a really stiff breeze getting off a plane at Oh my word. <laughs> Am I really ready for this? Yeah. But then you kind of have a, a have, you had a day there just to get final preparations at the base, safety briefings with their team, speaking with doctors, get the sled all packed up and organized. And then it was getting everything onto the small twin otter to fly to the start point on the, the day after. And yeah, it was only a half hour flight in that small plane to the start point. Uh, oh, it was amazing. I mean, from the flight, I was on the right-hand side of the plane, so my view was almost directly south. So I could see the expanse of where my route would actually go. I could see the landmarks. You could, so there's the Wilson Nunatuks, kind of the first set of Nunatuks, which you reach when you climb up from the Hercules Inlet. And then you see the Ellsworth Mountains to the southwest. Uh, and other features, um, it's um, a set of rocks, rocky outcrops, the three sails. And they're about 40 miles or so away off the top of my head. And uh, could see them in the distance. And I think, wow, that's that's exactly where the route's going to go. And, <laughs> and so that was kind of building up the excitement. Because uh, after that, it was just white void. Uh, and then getting out the plane. And yeah, and I guess it was more exciting. I didn't really feel that nervous i guess the most nervous i felt was when putting up the tent for the first time at uh in the end of the day but um i guess the the main moment was when the plane took off behind me and it kind of wiggled its wings to, mm-hmm. in the air to say goodbye i think a, as close a moment as a plane can get to giving a hug uh <laughs> and it just and it just flew off into the distance and yeah that was it and i mean i guess then you just think, well, here I am. Let's go onwards. <laughs> yeah. How did you plot your How did you plot your routes through that? Because I'm assuming you you came up against whiteout conditions and and wind and stuff like that. Was yeah. How how was that? Yeah. Challenge to overcome. The logistics company they have coordinates of the crevasse. The, the air, they know the areas where the crevasse fields are, so they kind of give you GPS coordinates mm-hmm. of places to head to heading waypoints to go to. So you, to avoid those, mm-hmm. uh, obviously there's quite a bit of distance between each waypoint. So if it's, I mean, so yeah, first of all, started off southwest because you couldn't go directly south because of a crevasse field. And once you got a okay. few kilometers in, then, you know, just gradually turning around to be up to heading south. But yeah, so I mean, a number of ways. I mean, you can't use your GPS all the time because of battery. You kind of, I would look at it every break or two breaks. Mm just to check my position to make sure I wasn't mm-hmm. going completely off course. And then there's other ways. So when the sun's out, you can easily just use the sun and your watch because the sun basically oh, okay. uh, mid, midday is always to the north. And it just I mean, you just uh, 
you know, rising in the east sets in the world going over to the west. So you know, just yeah. every hour it's moving by about 15 degrees. So seeing your shadow, seeing the sun, you can pretty much know where you're going. You can also use the wind. So I did that quite a lot, the direction the wind was coming from, because it's pretty consistent there. So most of the time it was coming yeah. at me from the south, southwest. Um, so just keeping the wind at the same angle to you, and you're pretty much going in the same direction. Obviously, it changes. You have to make sure that you still, you know, that it hasn't changed too much and you haven't noticed. But yeah, but that was that that definitely helped. But w- during whiteouts, though, and when there was w- no wind, uh, yeah, a compass. So basically, a, a compass mount <laughs> around my waist, uh, so I could keep my hands free on the on my ski poles. So just looking yeah. down at the compass, and which was. Good, but bad, because that gave me a, uh, an injury. <laughs> uh, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. What was so the, the after wait, about... so... Sorry. Now you go. Sorry, no, what are you going to ask? <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, you said about an, inju- an injury. Did, did, were you injured? Yeah. Doing that? Yeah, so after about four days, I started feeling uh, a pain in my neck. I thought that maybe I hadn't, and my shoulders as well. I thought that maybe my harness hadn't been adjusted properly. or Basically, it was started because I was looking down at my compass like this a lot of the time. Uh, the compass was too close to my body on the harness on the mount, and it didn't stop. So basically, it took me around 58 days to get to the pole. For 54 of those days, I was in increasing pain because of the neck. Uh, uh, I just, yeah, it was, I mean, it's still, to be honest, it still actually hurts a little bit. Now I can't turn my neck fully. Basically the, mu- the muscles got badly affected and, uh, yeah, if, during at, at night when putting up the tent, that was kind of the worst moments when, yeah, it was, it was a bit painful. Yeah. Yeah. What was the, you, you mentioned the sun and using that to track against your shadows, but at yeah. that time of the year, were you getting like 18 to 24 hours worth of daylight, I'm assuming? Or... Yeah, 24 hours of sunlight. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. H- how was that mentally? Yeah, so... to, how to, to deal with that? Because obviously the body clock and the conditions and stuff. Yeah. Uh, it was strange. It was, it was definitely strange still having the sun at midnight. And um, I guess more was point of view of having getting to sleep. I mean, I, I wore a face, kind of a mask over my eyes, but it gets w- pretty warm behind that mask and light still come, comes mm-hmm. in. And it was just, um, I, I didn't get, I wasn't able to sleep very well. I probably slept till now between four and five hours a night, if I was lucky. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it was difficult. But, I mean, it led to, I mean, it, I mean, it does make expeditions much well, less hard than they are up in the Arctic because, I mean, it, it mm-hmm. helps the, the tent get warm. At some point, uh, when I was up on the plateau, it was about minus 30 degrees outside. But inside the tent, because of the tent acting like a greenhouse, it was literally over 20 degrees Celsius yeah. inside the tent. And oh, I was wow. lying in my base layer on, on top of a sleeping bag. 
Swelching. It was so hot. No wind. It was completely still. And it was just yeah. boiling. That's fantastic. Yeah. I never uh, thought that. That's fantastic. Yeah. What was it like putting your tent up? Were you having to, was it difficult with like wind and, and the conditions that? Yeah, an interesting story with uh, with this. With my training, I went to Norway. I was spent three weeks by myself in Norway. But you see, just to get more more used to being alone and uh, skiing by myself is mm-hmm. is very different than being with other people. And on my second night there, extremely strong winds, and I did a really stupid mistake when I was putting up a tent. It's embarrassing to talk about. <laughs> but the, basically, I tried turning the tent before I anchored it properly in strong winds, and three out of the four poles broke uh, the fabric of the tent. So I basically had to get wow. call in a, a rescue, as that was the only thing which I could do. But at the same time, it kind of, I'm, it's one of the things which, one of the mistakes which I made, which I'm really glad I made it, because I kind of, learned what not to do and i'm glad i did it there where there was a kind of safety net in in norway uh, i mean the red cross people were wonderful i'm glad i made it there where whereas, whereas if i had that in the, if i'd done that mistake with that in, in antarctica that would have been that so kind of having done that mistake it kind of gave me the confidence i went back out in norway after that with a mended tent and able to do the expedition even though even in strong winds and i was able to bring that uh, with me to to Antarctica, which really helped. I just, I mean, the first thing which I would do when putting up the tent would be anchoring it to my sled and putting in the wind-facing uh, pegs in. And it was absolutely secure. I mean, it was a, it's a Hillebo tent, which is really mm-hmm. nice to put up by yourself. It's a Namaj 2. And basically, the wind actually even helps you to put it up. You, you, you kind of, you put the poles in, uh, while it's low down on the ground uh, and unfurl it and the wind kind of helps you unfurl it and yeah it could be a bit tricky when it's you know get yeah, exactly yeah it could be a bit tricky when it was really cold especially working with mittens and you know, with the tensioners but I never I can't remember feeling any moment where I was kind of worried about how secure the tent was. I mean, aside from that first night, kind of just those jitters being out there by myself, finally. <laughs> but, uh, don't want to lose the tent. Don't lose the tent. And I mean, also every morning, you know, always that worry. Sure, you take the tent down properly. But it was actually, it was okay. And yeah, I mean, on previous expeditions, I've used uh, also used a North Face V Summit Series tent, which is a lovely tent, but it's really hard to put up by yourself. So shifting over to the Hilleberg, I mean, nothing against North Face, but just by myself of a solo, it was much better for my, for my purposes. And it was, yeah, it was a nice piece of kit to have. Well, a bit of an odd question, but did you have any, when you were in the tent, did you hear any strange noises, like, you know, the glaciers calving or cracks in the night? Yes. I can imagine it could be quite a spooky environment. Yeah. Good question. I mean, it's, one one time camping, I mean, just getting up in the morning, and suddenly there was this like this wave of noise coming towards the tent, and it got louder and louder extremely quickly. It was just almost like a jet fighter, but then it reached the tent, yeah. and it felt like the actual ice beneath the tent actually shifted. And I was like, "Oh my god, what's happening?" I kind of. Uh, 
No, no idea what, what didn't have any idea at the time what it was. And I was in communication with other, a couple of the other expeditions on the ice nearby and sent them a message to see if they felt it as well. <laughs> Everybody felt it. So it wasn't just me hallucinating. <laughs> and yeah, apparently, uh, apparently it was some, maybe a snow layer just collapsing under the weight of something uh, rather than on it. And mm. it, yeah, basically a shockwave going through the, the snow. And yeah, uh, yeah. so that was pretty strange. It was one other yeah, strange moment. It wasn't a sound, it was a sight. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it was very un, un yeah, it was really unknown. Um but yeah, I settled myself. Fortunately it didn't happen again. Uh, <laughs> I guess aside from that, there was one other thing which happened. I was not hallucinating, and I, I promise I wasn't on the painkillers at that time. Uh, it was on uh day two, and there was a bird. It was either and must have been an albatross, because that's the only kind of bird which I could think of having that distance but it should not have been there it really shouldn't have been there because there's no food for it it's 700 miles away from open water and it circled around me twice about five ten meters away from me kind of and it was really bizarre and yeah it was only in on day two so it was quite close to the start i i just don't understand why i saw yeah. it why it was there what it was doing and then it just disappeared and uh, yeah, yeah, so that was the the other very strange moment there. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm if assuming it's been you known didn't see any other wildlife. No, yeah, no, no. I'm assuming there's no other wildlife because you're so you're so Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's a, it's a desert. Antarctica is just a desert. Uh, aside from the coast, nothing nothing lives inland. So what the that bird was doing there, I, I don't know because there's no no food for it to have at all. It's just very strange. But yeah, no, nothing else aside from that, no. Excellent. So so what was it, over your 58 days then, what was your, what would you say your highlight of, of the expedition was? Hmm. Or was it, or, or sorry, let me um, rephrase that actually. Yeah, what, what was the best part of it? Because it, obviously it sounds like it was a bit of a tough slog day after day, but, you know, what, what was it, what was your highlight of it? I mean, the best days, I mean, there were, there were days where I just looked around and think, wow, this place is absolutely incredible. It's just so still. There were days that were just perfectly still. Uh, I mean, especially when when you could see the mountains at the start, it was just absolutely beautiful. Mm. Uh, then even, you know, I complained all the time about the Sistrugi, uh, kind of the, the strange formations and the ice which make things, uh, makes travel much harder than it, it would otherwise be. But thinking about it, I mean, it was amazing, just these endless Sastrugi fields. Uh, but I guess my favorite moment came not at the pole, but before I got to the pole. It was the day I was, the final day, and it was basically 17, 18 hours skiing on that day. So it started off at 7 o'clock in the morning and got to the pole about 1.30 in the morning. So normally I would have camped around 6 o'clock in the afternoon, so the sun would have always either been to my side or behind me. But then ah. skiing that late, then the sun came around and it was finally actually in my eyes. And it's kind of a bit of a strange feeling because the sun is always to your north. I mean, it's never to, it's never to the south of you because uh, when you're only in the southern hemisphere. 
so it was in front of me, but I still had to go further south. It was actually kind of, which was kind of, what was happening? But it's the other side of the world yeah. is when they kind of realize that, yeah, it's, it's south of me, but it's north from the other side of the world. Uh, and it was that moment when I realized, wow, I really am at the bottom of the world. That was kind of, I, I just letting that sink in. I was kind of, wow, here I am. <laughs> so that was definitely my favorite moment of you. Yeah. Mm, amazing. Is it is it true, Ben, that did, did you have some contact with Sir Ranulf Fiennes as part of your preparation for this? Yeah. So yeah. That's right. He was being amazing. Him and Anton Boring. Uh, Anton was always, always on the, the kind of supporting the ex, his, his expedition. So they supported me with the Canada journey, in fact. Uh, so they kind of provided some uh, backing there. So with the Translobe Expedition Trust and ran a super helpful, super nice. And same with, with Anton as well. Absolutely fantastic people. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I was able to catch up with uh, Anton before heading to the uh, to, to Antarctica, and uh, and and Rand kindly sent a message up as well. <laughs> it was really good to hear from him after after it'd been a while since the Canada journey. So, yeah, no, that was it. Definitely added a bit of encouragement encouragement before I headed out. Yeah, there's no, nothing better. I mean, I can imagine nothing better than these guys giving you that. That encouragement and that that kind of stamp of approval, considering what you know, what, what Sir Ranulf yeah. has done himself. Yeah, but yeah, it was great having their their support. I mean, I mean the advice and you know just the, uh, from Ran and Anton and just all their thoughts about you know their experiences with, with their, their, their expeditions in the past. Just yeah, it's really uh, uh, definitely a psychological boost and great learning about their experiences as well. So it really was helpful. It's fantastic. Oh, awesome. So, so Ben, your expeditions often have a bit of a philanthropic angle to it as well. And, and I believe that you've raised some funds for cancer research as part of that expedition. Is, can you tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. And what that's right. So as I say, I mean, that's right. So I raised about £5,000 for, for cancer research. And so it was all basically because of with my mother. Uh, it was such a shock with her. So she was diagnosed with cancer when I was in Brazil, managed to get on the plane over. and uh, But within 10 days, she, she passed away. So it was just, uh, and just seeing that deterioration in the first 10 years, those 10 days, it was just, yeah, it was hard. So, yeah, so, I mean, cancer research was definitely kind of the, uh, yeah, if I could help, you know, make yeah, the expedition mean something a bit more than just my own dreams, then, uh, yeah, I wouldn't yeah, want to Yeah, that's amazing, mate. My condolences, and that's, that is re really something. So congratulations on, on everything that you've done with that and for a very worthy cause as well. It's uh, nothing short of phenomenal. So, so how would you say you're, t you know, reflecting on your expedition? How do you think it's changed you or impacted you as as a person? What would you say to that? I guess it's allowed me to. I mean, it almost kind of. I didn't realize how determined and single-minded I could be. <laughs> it made me realize that when I when you do work towards something, you you can do it, um, uh, and that I I, I can be uh, quite. 
lacking confidence is quite a uh, quite a good description for me in general but doing that it kind of you know realize that you can actually uh, can actually do things and then at the same time kind of kind of the value of friends and family and back home kind of all the messages which people were sending me was on the ice and uh, when I was on the ice I was just uh, uh, and I guess the time just in that solitude so it was lovely being back and seeing everybody and being with everybody again so <laughs> uh, kind of maybe kind of so value that more in my life than, than beforehand Awesome. So on that then, for, for anyone that's listening that, that's inspired by your expeditions and, and, and in particular this South Pole adventure and that may be considering doing something similar or even something a little bit smaller, what, what advice w- would you give to those? Um, so when I first thought about those global dreams you know kind of people i i mean hey even talking you know without having skied before people would kind of think what are you doing <laughs> uh, but you know if you have something which you really want to do you know if you really want to do it you can do it i mean i didn't know how to ski i didn't have money and you know, don't let things like money or distance or the weight or anything like that just uh, discourage you just believe in yourself and you know you work out what you need to do and and learn do do it. Try and get the uh, the experience. I mean, I started off just cycling, kind of started off, and then kind of keep putting myself out of my uh, comfort zone to to help that mental preparation and you know just the work work to make it happen. And you'll be able to do it. You just have, you know be dedicated and, uh, and you can do anything you really want to. That's great. Comm- committed. Yeah. Excellent. That's great. Yeah. That's great. So, so th- thanks, Ben. We're almost c- coming up on time. I just want to be respectful of your time and, and thank you for joining us today. So, I think m- moving on into our kind of closing traditions on the show, of which we have two uh, one is a call to adventure, and the other is a, a paid forward. So, in the call to adventure, it's a, an opportunity for you to suggest something to the listeners. An, an adventure, an activity, or a trip, or a place—something to get them inspired. So, so what would you say to that? Well, I guess I did all my mini adventures before with the expedition in Brazil, so it's got a bit harder to do that over here. But you know, as I say, I started off small yeah. with it. Just I mean, I don't know, didn't really do much cycling, so I started off cycling in the in Sao Paulo, which isn't a nice place to cycle. And then you kind of, kind of there's so many places which are nearby. You can, and if, you know, if you already do that, if you cycle already in the place where you live, you know, what about cycling to the next city along? Mm-hmm. And then so, uh, and then there's so many kind of small adventures which you can have, uh, and which are challenging, a bit more ambitious, and you know, and and, and you you get to see so much in doing that. So uh, oh, so awesome. within a couple of months, ended up doing Lands End to John O'Groats in winter. You know, think of ways to make it different. I mean, use the seasons to help the, the variation, and you, you get, you'll get some really amazing experiences. And uh, uh, when you least expect it. So, so there we go. There we have it. Pick, pick your bike, pick a season, and cycle to the next city. Awesome. So, uh, finally, the, the pay it forward. So, again, a, a chance for you to a message for any good causes, which I, I probably understand what, what you're about to say. But any, you know, in the pay it forward section, anything of note or a worthy charity that you want to to raise awareness of. Yeah, as I, yeah. As I say, I was I looked to raise money for cancer research. I mean, seeing how quickly my mum deteriorated was pretty traumatic for mm-hmm. me for my family. And 
Uh, obviously, I'm far from alone from ha- in having lost uh, somebody close to cancer. And, you know, anything that can be done through, I mean, cancer research is fantastic, kind of working with, uh, in, in research for, for, for treatments, palliative treatments, you know, and, and possible, you know, medical solutions. And, you know, you know, if anything can be done to, to help in that and just to help even reduce suffering of people, that, that, you know, that's, you know, and, or help kind of create more meaning to the ex- the whole expeditions and it would, you know, yeah, it would definitely mean a lot to me. Excellent. Thank you. And to me yeah. and to, to many others, no doubt as well. Thank you. Uh, excellent. That has been an excellent, uh, an excellent chat, Ben. I've re- really enjoyed that. It's been excellent to, to hear firsthand uh, your recount of your polar expedition. So, so what's next for Ben Weber? Are there any other uncharted territories ready to be explored? Uh, that's a good question as well. I'm hooked on Antarctica. It's almost like it is like a drug. Is something about it, the intensity, <laughs> that daily challenge of getting up with that goal. So, I would love to go back, and but I would like to do a crossing, kind of going from one side to, to the other. So I know that, yeah, a solo journey doing that. I know it's, uh, somebody's attempting it this year. I, I, regardless, I, I really want to, uh, to do that. It might, it, that, that might take some time. That would definitely be caught, need corporate sponsorship. Uh, <laughs> that's something which, which I'll, I'll have to work to. So we shall see what happens. Excellent. Excellent. So, so where can people find you, Ben? Where can they follow along on your expeditions? Yeah. So my website is, uh, uh uh, www.polarweber.com uh, so that's one B in Weber so yeah mm-hmm. it's, it still has the map of Antarctica there with the uh, with the audio blogs and the, the daily blogs in fact uh, from the ice and uh, yeah I, I haven't been very good at social media since I've been back uh, from the continent I guess is maybe withdrawal symptoms and <laughs> trying, trying to get used to being mm. having a bit of a common life, but yeah, other expeditions will definitely be going up onto that site. Excellent. Okay, so we'll get all that linked, including the, the adventures, the pay it forward, and everything else that you've mentioned today. We'll get yeah, that yeah, listed the, into the show notes and onto the site. Yeah, yeah, the link to the cancer research uh, fundraiser is also there if you know, if you are able to um, support in any way. That'd be uh, yes. Amazing. Excellent. Yes, we, we will get we'll get that shared and contributed to as well. So so thank you, Ben. So that brings it to a close. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. For the show notes and further information, please visit adventurediaries.com slash podcast. And finally, we hope to have inspired you to take action and plan your next adventure, big or small, because sometimes We all need a little adventure to cleanse that bitter taste of life from the soul. Until next time, have fun and keep paying it forward.